Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrittoma Amritangamaya Avi Avir Maidhi Rudrayate Dakshinamukam Tenamampa Hinityam Lead us from the unreal to the real, lead us from darkness to light, lead us from death to immortality. Light us through and through and guide us evermore with your loving presence. Om Shanti 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 Peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Good morning. Today's topic is spiritualizing life. Now, when we look around us, we find that there are many different methods offered. There are books, there are courses, there are all sorts of other programs that invite us to spiritualize our lives. And today what we're going to do is to focus on one particular area, and that is the teaching of the ancient seers of the Upanishads. Uh, The Upanishads are the most authoritative and revered of all the Indian scriptures. They constitute the culmination of the Veda. And what they do is they record the actual experiences of people who knew the divine as a matter of their own direct experience. And we're going to begin in the world today, here and now, where we are. And the first thought might be, well... People who lived in India three to 4,000 years ago had a very different experience of life than we did. And in some ways, their world was very, very different from the world today. And in other ways, our world today would be completely unimaginable to them. However, there are two things we have in common. One, we share our common humanity. And second, we are all involved in what is known as the human condition. Now, what is the human condition? A human condition we define pretty much by the fact that every one of us is born into a body and that this body changes over time. We're first in the state of infancy, then that morphs into the state of childhood. Childhood changes into the state of adolescence. Adolescence changes into the state of adulthood. Adulthood morphs into maturity, and maturity then declines into old age. So this is a part of the human condition. Another part is that the body may be healthy, it may be subject to an occasional illness or injury, it may have a chronic illness or a disability. And hovering over this entire span of human life is the fact of human mortality, the fact that death can happen at any time. Some lives, as we know, last only a matter of minutes, another life may stretch out over an entire century. But in the end, there's always the fact that human mortality is there. However, we are more than just the body. We're also the mind. And when we look at the mind, we find that that also, like the body, changes. We have the development of the mind, just the normal development. The fact that an infant learns how to crawl around, to walk on both feet, learns how to talk. And we learn just through daily experience how to live this life. And so every day we're gaining what I like to call the lessons of life. We learn basic skills. We learn how to fend for ourselves. We learn how to get along with one another. And we learn how to form lasting relationships. Above that, we have the whole idea of formal education and private study. And these two enrich our minds in many ways. So over the course of a life, we think, well, we should grow wiser. But it doesn't always work that way. 
Because sometimes we disregard the lessons that are right there in front of us. And at other times, we mistake information for knowledge, and then we mistake knowledge for wisdom. The mind is also very volatile in another way, and that is the fact that if you look at your mind, your emotions, things change from one minute to another. Your perceptions change as you move from one place to another. Your emotions will change rapidly depending on the situation. And so there's a whole panorama of this emotional life from this soaring brilliance of elation down to the darkest depths of despair. And we could be at any one of those places from one minute to the next. So the human condition has its pluses and its minuses. It's ongoing, this change, ever-changing. And at the same time, this brings us happiness, it brings us satisfaction, but just as easily it can bring us unhappiness, misery, or despair. So coping is another part of the human condition. Now, there are different levels of experience. There's the material level, there's the psychological level, and there's the spiritual level. First of all, with the material level, we have to consider the physical nature of the body. And then we have to consider the physical nature of the exterior world with which we all interact. Now, at the same time, there is the mental nature, and this is the thought processes and emotions that we all feel. This also is a part of our human condition, part of our everyday experience. And then above that, there is this spiritual level, and I'd like to call this our higher aspect. Now, Hindu tradition observes that all three of these are a valid part of human experience. And in the various branches of human tradition, the different lineages of teachers and disciples, we find that a number of models come forward to help us. And every one of those models, doesn't matter where it comes from, offers some sort of life-changing insights into the human being, into the world we live in, and into the higher reality that is our spiritual self. Now, this higher reality is referred to in the Upanishads by the terms Brahman, Atman, meaning self, or sometimes God, Deva, the Shining One. Now we're going to turn to the term human condition, and here's where we're going to go to the dictionary. Um, If you look at the word condition, one of the definitions in the dictionary is anything that modifies or restricts the nature existence, or occurrence of something else, an external circumstance or factor. I'll repeat that because there's a lot packed into that definition. A condition is anything that modifies or restricts the nature, existence, or occurrence of something else, an external circumstance or factor. Now, it's interesting because this dictionary takes us right to the heart of the matter, as it is seen in Hindu teaching. We're all restricted. We're all limited. This is part of the human condition. This is part of being an individual human soul. And we're restricted in five basic ways. We are limited by how much we can know. We're limited by how much we can do. We're limited by how much we can have. We are limited by how long our lives will last. And we are limited in the amount of freedom we can actually assert. Also, these restrictions are subject to continual modification or change. And that was part of the definition of condition, anything that modifies. So here we are in this changing world with all of these things going on around us. 
This definition also gives us a deeper insight because it says that a condition is an external circumstance or factor. This is very important. An external circumstance or factor. That means a condition is imposed on something. So if I am conditioned, then I am something apart from what is being imposed. If I am something apart from the human condition, what am I? Again, we'll turn to the Upanishads for the answer. Now, there are four what are called the Mahavakyas, the great statements or great dicta of the Upanishads. And all four of them answer that question of who or what am I? The first one I will read is from the Mandukya Upanishad of the Atarvaveda. It says, I am Atma Brahma. This self is Brahman. So at the center of human condition, we have this individual self. And this self is conditioned, modified, limited. It's subject to all sorts of different things going on around it. But at the same time, this individual self is aware of its own existence as a conscious, embodied being. But that small self is not the full identity, and that's the purpose of this Mahavakya. It says, this self is Brahman, I am Atma Brahma. The true self is the reality of infinite consciousness. It is not the reality of your limited experience. Next, we have the Chandogya Upanishad of the Samaveda. And the Mahavakya there is Tatvamasi, you are that. This is a teaching of Udalika, a great enlightened seer, to his son Shwetaketu, trying to tell him that the true being, his own true being, is not the body, not the mind, but something greater, something deeper within. The true being is the divine consciousness that is Brahman, and you are that. And Udalika is saying this not only to his son, he's saying this to all of us, we are that. So the true nature of every human soul at its heart is divine. Now it is up to every one of us to realize this, and we find this borne out in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad of the Ajurveda. The Mahavakya there is the actual utterance of a realized soul. He says, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. And that is what we try to aspire to while we are spiritualizing our lives. Now, there's something very interesting about these first three Mahavakyas. It's something I like to think I discovered all on my own. I've never read it anywhere. But they are each phrased a different way, and each one is expressed by a different grammatical person. The first one is a third-person utterance. I am Atma Brahman. This self is Brahman. We're talking about something. The second one is Satvamasi. You are that. This is the person being spoken to. And then the third one, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. This is the person speaking. So third person, about, second person, to, first person, I am. So no matter what angle we look at it from, that truth is there, that the reality, the true nature of every human soul is divine, is Brahman. So what is Brahman, we ask? And the fourth Mahavakya will answer that. This one is found in the Aitareya Upanishad of the Rig Veda. And this Mahavakya reads, Pragyanam Brahma. Brahman is pure consciousness. Now, the human condition is a step away from that pure consciousness, but it seems to us a mighty colossal step, and it seems like we are incapable of reversing that. 
Yes, we see ourselves as conscious. There is no question about that. But only in a limited sense. We fail to see ourselves as consciousness itself, as Brahman. And that consciousness knows no limit. Now, in Hindu teaching, we are invited then to think about who we think we are, what we think the world is, how those two interact, and finally, beyond that, what we truly are. Let's start with the material world, because this is the outermost part of our perceived reality. I know I exist, and I know I exist in this world of name and form. That is the physical world. That is the setting for my existence. Now, in his play, As You Like It, Shakespeare wrote the line, All the world's a stage. I'm sure you've all heard of that. All the world's a stage. It wasn't original with Shakespeare. I don't know who came up with this or when, but we find it 750 years earlier in India in a work called the Shiva Sutra, which is a manual on meditation. And so the stage is the setting of our life. And it's a place where our life story unfolds from beginning to end. Now, the play may have several acts, and within the acts we may have several scenes with different backdrops, different props, different costumes. We find there are various characters in these scenes, the dramatis personae, as they are known, and they come and go. This is a lot like life. And each one of us, each one of them, is a separate self. And each one of us identifies with a role. But in reality, God, the Supreme Self, is the actor playing all the roles. And so human condition, we might say, is a case of mistaken identity. In truth, we are not these distinct personalities. We are the actor who plays all the roles. We are that divine. We are Brahman. Now, there's another allusion to the stage, which will give us more insight, and this comes from the Greco-Roman world. We have the word personality, and that derives from the Latin word persona. And originally, persona meant a mask. This was the mask that an actor would wear on the stage. This is one of the ways scholars interpret this. And they say that it comes from the Latin personare, which means to sound through. The purpose of that mask was to amplify the voice of the character so that the audience could hear it clearly. So in the same sense, a personality is a character. It's the character we play. It's fashioned by the human ego. And what is its main purpose? To make itself heard on this stage of life. And so here we have the ego and its purpose of self-amplification. Now, each of us wears a mask. Each one of us is projecting his personality, but the mask, besides projecting the personality, is concealing the identity of the actor behind it. And so the mask of our personality conceals who we truly are, the divine self, playing a role in this drama or comedy of life. And we as individual characters, and here I must add, some of us are indeed characters, we're caught up in this constantly evolving action. Hinduism calls this bondage. And this encompasses everything from our interactions with material objects to other living beings to our interactions with our own mind and our thoughts, our perceptions, our emotions. And this goes on day and night. Now, it's probably safe to say that Human beings have probably always been attracted to material objects. 
probably goes all the way back to cave times when somebody had a nicer rock than somebody else, when they could scrape the hide better or, or crush the seeds better or whatnot. So this is not something that is unnatural. This is part of the human condition again. Now, we're all attracted to things, and that is because they can give us enjoyment. But sometimes that enjoyment also leads to the desire to possess. I like that, and I want it to be mine. And these possessions not only give us the pleasure or the enjoyment, but sometimes they also give us a sense of contentment, a sense of comfort, a sense of security. So we find all of that in the things we own. Now, luxury goods have long been a status symbol. And if these luxury goods are impressive enough, they can also impart to us this sense not only of security and satisfaction, but of superiority or even power over others. Now, at the same time, there have always been others who are going to exploit this. They're going to look at our needs and our wants and turn them around for their own benefit. And this is nothing new. But in today's world, as never before, we are subjected to a constant barrage of subtly manipulative advertising with a hidden, pernicious message. And that message is, you are what you own. And this is a message that's directed to all aspects of society, young and old, rich and poor, everybody. You are what you own. For better or for worse, we might add to that. For better, of course, means that we can afford more costly products, the kind that invite the admiration of others. For worse means we can't afford them, and people are going to think less of us. And as a result of people thinking less of us, we're going to think less of ourselves. And so if my identity and my self-worth depend on objects outside of myself, then ironically, what I own ends up owning me. So we have this intimate connection with this material, physical world. Now, there's one part of the physical world that we are intimately and inextricably inseparable from during the course of an entire human lifetime, and that is the human body. Each one of us inhabits a body. And like the mind which defines us, the body likewise defines, or like objects that define us, the body defines us. First of all, the body is an object. It has qualities. It has characteristics. It has the characteristics and qualities of sex and gender. It has height or the lack of height, weight, shape, size. All of the distinctive features that make each one of us human individuals look like a separate and easily identifiable body. Each one of these leads to our own unique appearance. And that appearance plays a role in forming our sense of identity. Additionally, the body will have agility or strength, or maybe not. And all of this, too, leads to our sense of self, what we can do, what we're capable of. And of course, inexorably, the body changes over time. And with age, also, our self-image changes. So we are conditioned by the physical objects around us, we are conditioned by the physical object called the body, which we inhabit, which we claim to be a part of our identity, but we can't limit our sense of identity merely to physical matter. The sense of self is often spoken of as the body-mind complex. So here the mind comes in. We think of the mind as being inside of the body. Somehow it's in there and it's looking out, perceiving the external world. What the mind does is, yes, it perceives, it sees, it hears, it all of the five senses, and then it seeks to understand all of this information. 
And then on top of that, the mind will put a personal stamp on everything. And this is the result of the ahamkara. That's a Sanskrit word for ego, and it literally means I maker. The word ego derives from Latin, and it is actually the personal pronoun I. So let's take a look at the Hindu view of the ego. The ego is that sense of individual selfhood that will identify with objective qualities and create a personality. We like to identify with qualities of choice, the things we like. That's what we want to be part of our identity. And so we create a personality. The ahamkara makes the personality. And this is usually based on likes and dislikes. So we're torn back and forth. Both physical and mental likes and dislikes form a part of who we are. Otherwise, if, if the physical didn't matter, I don't think there'd be a cosmetics industry, for example. But, you know, people need that to enhance their identity, or at least some people do. So we're pulled back and forth. And, of course, what happens when we're pulled back and forth? You might say we are reactive. And all of our reactions add up. They lead to what we call habitual behavior. And these patterns of habitual behavior are, of course, defined in Hinduism as bondage. So we have our likes and our dislikes. And at the mental level, these all become the ingredients of our own general outlook on life. They become the ingredients that our attitudes are made out of. And then they also lead us to form cherished opinions. And then we defend our cherished opinions as if they were part of our very own self. Now, earlier, we talked about what we own might end up owning us. Now, from a spiritual point of view, you are what you own is clearly false. Now, how about you are what you think? You know, many religions teach this, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, and so forth. But that's only a relative truth. It's true of the human condition, definitely, and it accounts for how we define ourselves at any given moment. But there is this idea in Hinduism, pratyaya. Pratyaya is a wonderful word. It means anything that is present to your awareness. And so this content, this whatever becomes present from our awareness, might come from something outside, or if we're sitting quietly, meditating, eyes closed, it will rise from something inside of us. So the content of our consciousness, our awareness, comes from outside or inside, but it is a content, an object, something present there. And so this can lead us into greater bondage, or it can help push us towards a direction of freedom. It's a choice that we have to make. So in this highest sense, you are what you think is only partially true, and in the end it is false, because the true self is Brahman, and Brahman is beyond all thought. We can't think of Brahman, so we can't be Brahman by thinking of Brahman. You are what you think only applies to the human condition. Every thought is a transient appearance within consciousness. It comes, it goes. But the true self is consciousness itself. Now, each individual soul is a highly complex center of limited consciousness, a little bubble of awareness, seven plus billion bubbles on this planet. And each one of these becomes a vantage point for an individual self. No two of us see the world from exactly the same place or exactly in the same way. And we all interact with the surrounding world in complicated ways. And these can lead to harmony, or they can lead to discord. They can bring us happiness, or they can bring us misery, or anything and everything in between. Now, 
speaking of myself and probably every person here or everywhere, one's own ego self can be an almost constant challenge. So what about this one ego self trying to get along with another ego self? And then there's the idea of the collective ego, that sense of group identity, which pits us against them all too often. And here, when we get into this question of ego, we face this exponential possibilities for the human condition at its worst. And we see this playing out in the world around us every day. So what about this world? Let's turn to the Upanishads again. The Chandogya Upanishad has a statement that is regarded almost as if it were a Mahavakya. This is a statement that is highly revered. Sarvam Kalvidam Brahma. All this world is truly Brahman. If so, why would we want to disparage the world or turn our backs on it? We'll turn to another Upanishad, the Isha Upanishad. And the opening verse of this says, All this, whatever moves in this moving world, is to be steeped in God. All this you may enjoy by letting go of it as your own. Strive for no other kind of wealth. So let's take a closer look at this verse. It was actually the starting point of today's talk. This verse invites us to cultivate this constant mindfulness of the divine presence in and through the world, in and through every aspect of our lives, everything we do, say, and think. Try to divinize that. The divine presence is always there, of course, but we just don't notice it. And why don't we just notice? Well, first of all, that verse refers to this world as idam sarvam. It's a very common Sanskrit expression. It means all this. All this world, all this is so vast. It's just overwhelming. It's a lot to take in. And then it refers to the world again as jagat that which moves. So here we are faced with all of this vastness, constantly moving, constantly changing, overwhelming. And then besides this, we have our own sense of smallness and inadequacy. And so we become unaware of our true selves, unaware of that nature of Brahman pervading all. We don't see the stillness of Brahman behind all this activity of the world. The magnitude of it all is just overwhelming. And so we have to remember again what the Chandogya Upanishad says, all this is truly Brahman. So again, that and the Ishupanishad exhort us to saturate our every experience of life in the divine. Now this verse also uses the verb bunjita, you may enjoy or you may experience this world. The seer is urging us, enjoy the world, experience it, but how? Tena tyaktena by letting go. Now, this verse is usually translated meaning, oh, renounce it all. But it makes no sense. Because why would the first line of the verse tell you to steep everything in God, to imbue everything with the divine presence, and then to renounce it, turn your back on it? So I think what it means is letting go of thinking of it as your own possession, letting go of that kind of selfish identification. And we have to remember also that letting go is not the same as pushing away. If you look at it, when you're pushing something away, you're actually engaging with it. This is true on the physical plane, you know, resistance and back and forth. It's equally true, if not more so, in the realm of emotions and thoughts. So letting go is, in fact, releasing. It's a very simple act. There is no resistance. And this, I think, is a very important point. Letting go is a release from all engagement, 
We have to let go of the mindness that binds us to this human condition. And then finally, the verse concludes, strive for no other kind of wealth. It wants us to recognize that the true wealth, the true value of the world, is the divine presence that is pervading it all. Now, the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad has a famous episode about this great seer Yajnavalkya when he was about to embark on the fourth stage of life, the life of a wandering ascetic. And before leaving home, he was going to make provision for his two wives. Now, his first wife, Katyayani, had all the interests of a woman of her social standing. She was wealthy, and she was only concerned about her position in society and leading a comfortable life. But his other wife, Maitreyi, who was very dear to Yagnivalka's heart, was interested in things of a higher nature. And so she asked him if wealth will give her immortality. And his answer was, wealth will only allow you to live the kind of life that wealth makes possible. And then he began the famous teaching where he tells her, it is not for the sake of the spouse or for the children that they are dear, but for the sake of the indwelling divine self. And he goes on and he says, everything, everything in the world, material wealth, livestock, priestly power, royal power, the worlds, the gods, the Vedas, they only have value because of the divine self that is their true essence. Their appearance doesn't matter. And so he's saying to look for the indwelling essence. And then he instructs Maitreyi to reflect and concentrate inwardly to find her own true self. And he says, once you know yourself, you will know the whole world. Now, what does that mean? It means that she will see everything for its true value. Once she has experienced the self within, she will experience the self pervading the entire world. And at this point, she's confused, and she says, I don't really understand what you're trying to tell me. And he answers, the self is imperishable. Its nature is indestructible. So he's talking about the impermanence of material wealth, the impermanence of human relationships, of worldly power, even of worldly knowledge. There is no true and lasting satisfaction in any of that. So for my tray, recognition of the imperishability of her own true self is the only thing that can give her the everlasting joy that she seeks. Beyond that, he says, there is no higher fulfillment. Now, this also agrees with the message of that first verse of the Ishupanishad. Basically, the Ishupanishad said, see the divine presence in everything. Let go of all sense of possession and seek no other form of wealth than the knowledge that the divine is ever-present in and through all things. Now, when we want to spiritualize our lives, there's a simple equation that might be helpful. One plus one equals three. Now, if you're in the first grade and you tell this to your teacher during an arithmetic lesson and you stand by that, there's a good chance you'll never make it to second grade. But spiritually speaking, 1 plus 1 equals 3 is a very convenient way to remember the truth that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. If you take every physical object in this universe and add them up, they cannot begin to approach the glory, the magnitude, the wholeness that is Brahman. No amount of finite objects can ever add up to the infinite. We find this true also in the Shvetashvatara Upanishad, and this verse declares the infinitude of Brahman. Not above, not across, not in the middle has anyone fully grasped him. 
There is no measure of him whose name is great glory. Also from the Sri Upanishad, we find a frank portrayal of the human condition. The individual soul should be recognized as a fraction of the hundredth part of a tip of a hair, again divided a hundred times. Yet it partakes of infinity. So at the heart of all our miserable smallness, we find this all-pervading reality of the infinite Brahman. As we currently experience it, life is imperfect, but the essence of life is perfection itself. And so this verse is an affirmation of that untold possibility that we can every moment spiritualize the moment. Every challenge becomes a spiritual opportunity. Now, Hinduism speaks of the spiritual goal as self-knowledge, enlightenment, or liberation. And there are many paths, many different ways to spiritualize life. The Upanishads tell us to be mindful of the divinity that is everywhere. Cultivate a positive sense of reverence. Even in our own experiences, we can see how we're uplifted by the beauty and the grandeur of nature, or inspired by great art or music or literature, inspired by great acts, noble deeds of other people. All of these speak to the better part of ourselves. They want us to be better also. And so let's try that. But at the same time, the Upanishads say, look inward. Cultivate a sense of detachment from that which binds us from the outer world, and from also the private inner workings of our own mind. Now, there are many ways to spiritualize life which can be tailored individually, and they should be tailored individually, because a good fit for one person may not suit another. So that said, there are some generally recognized processes that we can engage in. One is contemplative study and contemplation. And here we are using the intellect as our guiding force. Or we can turn our emotions Godward through religious devotion and worship. Or we can serve others and offer them selfless love and help and compassion in times of need. All of these paths have the same effect. Every one of them diminishes the sense of ego. Every one of them dissolves that sense of separateness that keeps us from recognizing the infinite Brahman as the true self. So spiritualizing life has a transformative value. And once the obstruction of the ego sense is gone, everything appears in a new light. The Ishupanishad again, verses 6 and 7. One who perceives all beings in the self, and the self in all beings, thus shrinks away from nothing. For the one who knows, in whom all beings have become the self alone, in such a beholder, then what delusion and what sorrow can there be? Shrinks away from nothing is an acceptance of everything as a manifestation of the divine. It also tells us there is no need for aversion, no need for fear. Uh, we find this same thing in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad in a dialogue between King Janaka and the seer Yajnavalkya. Yajnavalkya instructs the king in the higher ways of knowing, the experience of pure consciousness beyond waking, dreaming, and dreamless sleep. And he gives him this teaching. It's not in his own words. And he says, I'm quoting from an older source here. But what Yagnivalka quotes is this. When one clearly sees the self as the effulgent God, as the Lord of what has been and what will be, he does not shrink away. That before which the year revolves with its days, that his faculties of knowing worship as the light of lights, as the power of life, as the immortal. 
That alone I regard as the self. Knowing the immortal Brahman, I am immortal. Now we're going to jump ahead several centuries to a great seer, Abhinavagupta, who lived in Kashmir from about 960 until after 1015. He wrote a poem called Mahopadeshavinshutika, which means 20 verses on the great teaching. And these are tranquil musings of a realized soul. The simplicity of this poem reflects the beauty and the depth of his message. I'm going to read only five verses, the first four and then the last one. It begins as a dialogue between God and the self, the inner self. And the poet Abhinavagupta says, Salutation to you who take form as the universe of mind and matter, even while your nature transcends its diversity. To you, the true self, who are radiance and everlasting joy and infinite power. Now, this verse begins the poem in a spirit of worship and praise, salutations to you. But then it also recognizes that God is not separate, but is the true self. So spiritualizing life begins with this respectful and loving relationship with God. And then it culminates in a realization of identity. We move from relationship to identity. Uh, This is more than conventional reverence. This verse also summarizes some of the basic principles of non-dualism. It says that God himself assumes every form, yet ever abides as changeless, the all-illuminating light of consciousness. Every thought, every feeling, every creature we encounter, every object in the universe, everything that we claim is our own possession, everything we claim forms our own identity, all of that is made of that essential light of consciousness projecting itself. We find the same idea again in the Chandogya Upanishad. Now the light that shines above this heaven, above all the worlds, above everything, and in the highest worlds beyond which there are none higher, this is the same light that is within the human being. Truly, this whole world is Brahman, from which the universe comes forth, into which it merges, in which it breathes. So Brahman illuminates the whole of creation. It shines as the consciousness in every sentient heart. And it is the Brahman whose life breath gives life to the world. But in the dimness of the human condition, we're rarely aware of this. So we talk of spiritualizing life, but in fact, life breath, our very life breath, is already divine. Now, the second verse of Abhinavagupta's poem addresses the innermost self again. And note the innocent simplicity of his words here. It's deeply touching. One here said that you are you, and I am I. Or that you alone are, and I am not. Or that I am you. Salutations repeatedly to the Supreme Self, wherein there are not two, the I and you. Now, Behind the simplicity of these words, he is summarizing three basic philosophical positions on the nature of God in the individual soul. He doesn't do this as an instruction. He just wants to call attention to the fact that people regard God and themselves in different ways. The first one is that the God and the soul are eternally distinct, that you are you and I am I. The second view is that the soul reality is the divine, And this dismisses the individual soul as transient or illusory, that you alone are and I am not. And then finally, in the spirit of the Mahavakyas, the identity of the two, that I am you, 
And this is what Abhinavagupta says is his own experience. He has experienced that you and I are the same, that I am that divine reality, I am Brahman. So this applies not only to the soul and God, but to everything in the universe. The opening verse had said that Brahman indeed has become all this. So reality, although indeed one, does not exclude the appearance of the many. The third verse, constantly have I sought you and self inside of me. There I see not you and self, but what I see is only you. So in the dualistic state, in the human condition, we have the finite individual self and the infinite self that is God, and they appear to be different or separate, but their essential being is one. So how do we counter the seeming difference? Individual selfhood arises with the outward glow of consciousness. This is called the extroversion of consciousness, divine consciousness projecting itself, srishti. And with this comes this identification with the objective factors. Vedanta usually speaks of it as the association of the self, atman, with the not-self, anatman. But if that's true, the reverse is also true, with the introversion of consciousness, the sense of difference dissolves until finally there is that sense of one, only one remains. And that's what this verse is saying. So the aspiring soul seeking God and self within will find only God. It's that simple. Verse 4. Now, contemplating you, whose essence is the self, I, your devotee, whose outward appearance is but you made manifest, offer repeated salutations to the unity of you and me. Here we find that from this initial approach, the relationship with the divine grows steadily closer. It goes from casual acquaintance to intimate connection to a commingling in union, and beyond that to the recognition of identity. And that is the self-realization. So it's the experience of everything as having a single essence. In the light of the supreme knowledge, even the outward appearance of the body has here, for Abhinavagupta, become an expression of the indwelling divinity. And so addressing the Supreme Self, repeating, he says, repeated salutation to the unity of you and me. So in this ineffable oneness, the whole of life becomes a perpetual act of worship. Now the last verse summarizes the whole essence of spiritualizing life. This alone is the highest worship. In all circumstances and at all times, fix your mind on the effulgent Lord of the universe in the full awareness of his oneness and of your oneness with him. So here we're going well beyond conventional religiosity. We are directed to a higher, expanded awareness in which everything is seen as divine, and where no distinction of I and other remains. All this is one with the one. Such is the highest worship and the highest spiritualization of life. It is the complete absorption of the small self, into the self that knows no limits. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavashishyate Om Filled full with Brahman of the things we see, Filled full with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman floweth all that is. From Brahman floweth all, yet is it still the same. 
Om Shanti 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 You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.